Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. Hey there, everyone. From KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer. And tonight, we're excited to dig into the world of political fundraising with a woman who's taking a very different approach to winning elections. That's right. Jennifer Fernandez and Kona is here. She co-founded the group Way to Win, which is focused on taking back the White House in 2020, not by winning back those elusive working-class white Midwestern voters, but by actually turning out a whole new group of voters. We're talking about voters of color, young people, progressives who may have just sat out previous elections altogether. But Jennifer and her partners have some new strategies for getting those folks involved, engaged, and ultimately, what really matters, to the polls. But first, we have a very special guest here in studio with us, KQED's own Tanya Mosley, host of the brand new podcast, Truth Be Told. It's a show by and for people of color, and its first episode dropped just last week, and its second came out today. That's right. I'm excited to be with you guys. I'm always in the car with you listening. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're super excited you're here. And before we talk to Jennifer about turning out people of color. We want to talk to you a little bit about what it's like for people of color running for office and and what you think different communities are thinking about as we go into 2020, which everyone keeps saying is the most important election of our lifetime. Mm -hmm. So in a few weeks, you guys have an episode coming out called Enough. Can you just talk about the biggest premise and then maybe we'll try to tie it a little to politics? Yeah. So we received this question in various different forms from lots of folks. Am I enough? Am I black enough? Am I Latina enough? Am I Asian enough? And this question asker was really talking about her Latin identity. And am I Mexican enough? And how do I deal with these um, interactions I'm having with people in the world who don't see me as Mexican because I am white passing, Mm. but I hugely identify and my culture is rooted in Mexican identity. And of course, Obama dealt with that when he was running for president. There were people who felt he wasn't black enough because of his mom was white and where he grew up and how he yeah, grew up. Yeah, and Julian Castro we have on 
like next week. And he's talked about that in context of does, you know, did you grow up speaking Spanish? Mm -hmm. Do you have to speak Spanish to be Latina, Latino, Mexican? Yeah. You know, there's this meme right now that's going around and it's Kamala Harris and Cory Booker. But it's like two teenage uh, black kids and they're like doing a dance off in front of each other, like as if like I'm black enough. I'm more black. I'm more black. This is something that is really a big deal. Identity politics within politics in this political election specifically, because we have so many people of color who've thrown their hat in the ring and also so many women and a gay candidate for the first time ever, Mayor Pete Pete Buttigieg from uh, Indiana. But I mean, I wonder too, like, I feel like if you're running for office and you're trying to attract all different types of people to get to the polls and vote for you, there's also the question of like, how black do I want to be? Or how much do I want to wear my identity out there? I mean, and and then there's all these questions that you hear sort of voters and pundits asking about, like, are these people electable? Yeah. I mean, do you have you guys thought at all about like, yeah, is there a question of like trying to sort of pass in a certain way if you're a candidate? It's we live in a really interesting time because I think that we are in a time where how we used to think of the political process, how we used to think about an electable candidate is now out the window with Trump being elected as president. And so now when we think about this, I mean, Stacey Abrams said we are identity politics. Mm -hmm. Like we need to embrace this. We need to get people who maybe historically have not come out to the polls, come out to the polls and see themselves in a candidate. And so being truly authentic yourself she feels, and a lot of other candidates feel, will bring people to the polls in a way that perhaps they haven't been before. You know, in the description of Truth Be Told, uh, one of the words that's used to describe it is unfiltered. Mm-hmm. And I'm just wondering, like, what gets filtered and by who when we're talking about race, especially in this political context? The big thing that gets filtered is who you're talking to. So I I think specifically in public radio, we're often talking to a white audience about issues around people of color, black, brown, indigenous and Asian folks. Like explaining black people to white people. Yeah. Yeah. So it's always with the guys like I'm sitting down and I'm telling you about my people. But very it's few, like not. And it's yeah. always other with the centering of whiteness. But the conversations we were trying to get at and it's hard even as a person of color because you're in this society like you have to kind of unpack a lot of things to get to that heart of that unfiltered discussion but it's like we don't have to have all of the explainers before we get into the meat of the discussions that we want to have with each other I'm curious how you view this question of quote unquote electability because like it's something I mean Again, I think that some of it is pundits and sort of the construct the media makes about it. But I'm experiencing this in my own reporting. Like I was at an event recently and a woman came up to me, white woman, and said, I love Kamala, but do you think she could really be elected? Mm -hmm. And as somebody who covers politics, like I just think you should vote for who you believe in, just like on a basic democratic (laughs) principle. Mm -hmm. But that also raises so many questions about like subjectivity. And I might see somebody as electable that you don't see. as Yeah. And is that sort of like a like a hidden is there a hidden message in that? Like, Like, can we elect a, a, a half Asian, half black woman president? 
Yeah, again, going back to this time in history, you know, I like to tell the story about in the 80s when Jesse Jackson ran and we were all just like, we are voting, you know, I was a child at the time, but my family and all of those around me were like, we're voting for Jesse Jackson because he's a black person and we don't really expect for him to win, but we're voting for him because it's symbolic. But right now, today, there's so many forces, so many people are like, we've got to get Trump out of office. That's what they're saying. And so with that, I mean, I think people are looking at it differently. They're looking at the political process differently and looking at who they believe can beat Trump. Well, how do you know that, though, right? How do you know that? I mean, it is uncharted territory. We'll see. But, you know, I Trump is very smart. I heard him this morning talking about um, identity That he was politics. a genius? Yeah, he was a genius. Stable genius. That's right. He says all of those things, but he's putting little seeds and uh, folks like around the election and who, who he's going to be up against. Right. Who he wants to be up against. Who he wants to be up against. And that's strategizing in a way that like sticks with you over the next few months and the next year. Well, since your show is like an advice show, let me ask you some advice. How do you think people, both white people and people of color going into 2020, should do the work to not sort of fall into their own traps when we talk about this question of like, which candidates speak to me? Because I think, again, like it's such a subconscious decision to say, well, I think that person is totally electable versus this person. And so much of it has to do with our own experiences. Like, is there a way you challenge people to kind of try to step back and I don't know ask themselves a question about their own assumptions um you know it's an interesting question because again we're not a monolithic community so the black community and then especially people of color like they're so huge and so but I think the woman that you're going to be talking to later will really speak to this about being strategic around um the the conversations that you have with people around the politicians who are running for president. And I think that everyone is in on the conversation in a way that maybe they weren't several years ago. People are more active versus passive when it comes to the political process. For goodness sakes, every day there's something on the news about the president and about how things work in the White House and how things work in Congress. So people are learning in a way that perhaps, you know, we thought of as dumb Americans and we don't know, like, the ins and outs of the political process. But I think people are smarter now and they'll be going to the polls with those things well, in mind. I wonder if you, if you feel sometimes that there is an expectation that if for example, you're black, you're a Democrat. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, when we talk about the Asian American community, I mean, that is so diverse. Mm -hmm. And there's so many levels, or the Latino community for that matter, you know, there's, if you're from Cuba or Mexico Mm -hmm. or Central America, I mean, you know, within those communities, do you get a sense that there is a stratification that happens as well politically? Very good question. I mean, right now we're looking, we're going even further. So we're looking at like, you know, there's a Democratic Party, there's a Socialist Party, like people are starting to look in that direction as far as like, what politician really speaks to the issues that I'm dealing with day to day, and I want taken on. Um, But we're more I mean, we're more polarized than ever when it comes to that. I mean, I think historically, you know, black historically black folks were Republicans. Right. I mean, um, Abraham so, Lincoln, Abraham. Absolutely. And, you know, as we as we get closer and closer to current day, of course, that shifted. And it was a very strategic move on the part of Democrats to do that. Um, 
you know, it's and they're trying to do it again, really. I mean, that's what we're going to talk to Jennifer about to a large extent is like the question of, you know, did Democrats give up on the South and should they not be right? Because there's a sense that some of these red states could actually be blue if you just turned out the right people. You don't even have to change the electorate or you have to change the electorate. You don't have to change, you know, population. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. The assumptions that you have the vote, whether you're Democrat or Republican, that you have the vote of specific populations, I think is just out of the window now. Like it's no longer a thing. All right. We're going to have to let Tanya go. Tanya Mosley, host of Truth Be Told. You can find it wherever you get your podcast. It drops every Thursday, just like us. So you can make it a full hour of KQED. There That's you go. right. That's Ness. right. Thank you for Thanks, having Tanya. me. Thank, Thank you. you. All right. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll be joined by Democratic fundraiser Jennifer Fernandez and Kona. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit Donate dot kqed dot org slash podcasts to sign up now that's podcast with an s thanks Welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos, along with Scott Schaefer. And tonight we are here with a woman who's shaking up Democratic fundraising and politics, Jennifer Fernandez and Kona. Welcome to The Breakdown. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Good to have you. So... You heard at the top, I mean, we're kind of already delving into some of these questions of identity politics and the electorate Mm -hmm. um, and reading about your group way to win. And you guys do fundraising and help put that money in different organizations. Mm -hmm. And the strategy, one of your co-founders kind of summed it up as we're not talking about trying to move red to blue. We're talking about moving non-voters to voters. Absolutely. Why? Like, why is that the strategy that you guys think is key for Democrats and especially progressive Democrats who you represent? Yeah, thank you. Well, one thing is that the country is changing. The demographics of the country are changing, as we all know. And so by 2050, it's going to be a majority people of color country. So the reason why we want to um, switch our strategies from our swing voter is a non-voter to voter is because most of the 42 percent of the people who didn't vote in 2016, um, the majority of them are young people and people of color. And so it it connects with the demographic changes that we know are happening. And so our strategies have to match those shifts. And how much of getting somebody to go from non-voting to voting, how much of that is the candidate? How much of it is voter education? How Mm -hmm. much of it is bugging them with phone calls and knocking on their door? I mean, how, how do you think of that? Yeah, the way we think about it at Way to Win is it's a number of things. And actually, we developed um, what we call signals of success, five signals. So we knew that 
in order to know we were winning, how do we measure our success? We can't measure it just by Democrats winning or losing. We actually have to measure it in a different way, in a deeper way. And so it's a mix of, of those things that you mentioned. Uh, one of them is reflective democracy. Can can they see the person, can they see themselves reflected in the candidate? Is the candidate speaking to their issues? Um, a lot of it is about um, are their lives going to get better after they vote for this person? And do they feel that impact? So a lot of it is the politics are local, right? And, and so that's why Way to Win really focuses on building long-term political power at the local and state level. That is where the change is going to happen kind of from the bottom up. Talk about that a little more, because I think that that is something unique. I mean, historically, and and maybe tell me mm-hmm. if I'm wrong, but I, I feel like a political fundraising is a little there's a lot of it's kind of opaque. Like mm-hmm. it's those of us who are not, you know, cutting twenty five thousand dollar checks aren't usually invited into the room for the big candidate fundraisers. And what you guys are doing is not really looking at the candidates, but looking at the groups that are on the ground and right. that exist in these communities already. Um has that I mean, how do you guys identify those groups and mm-hmm. are they usually actually political groups to start with? Yeah. So you think of it as independent political organizations. So these are groups that exist in states, in commun- in communities, and we find them by talking to the leaders who we know in those communities. So way to win, you know, we're all sure we'll talk about it more around the South and Southwest strategy. It, we have targeted a number of states that we re- where we really see the potential where the number of voters registered, you know, I'm sorry, eligible voters um, who are young people and people of color who we know are more progressive in their values is far surpasses the the number, the win number that you would need to actually flip that state. So that's how we look at which states we go into. And then when you know about a state like, for example, Virginia, um, you, you kind of go in there and you talk to people and you talk to leaders and you'll find a group called New Virginia Majority, which is led by a woman of color that's been working for eight to 10 years to really f- turn Virginia solidly blue. And it's year round organizing. So that's one of the, the principles is like how you engage someone every day of the year, not just a couple weeks before the election. You said that one of the measurements is do do voters see themselves reflected in the candidate, I Mm -hmm. guess, and in the policies that they're talking about. And I'm thinking back to 2016, and Mm -hmm. I remember doing a story during the primary looking at African-American voters and how they were looking at Bernie Sanders mm-hmm. versus Hillary. And there was a real age divide. Younger African-Americans were not into Hillary Clinton at all. Yeah. They were for the 70, whatever he was then, five-year-old white guy. Yeah. So how does that fig factor in to when you're deciding, yeah. you know, when you're thinking about these things? Yeah, I think it's a both and. So it's, there's definitely, you know, we want candidates who reflect the new American majority. That is important, especially at the local level. But it's also a reflection around the big, bold vision, right? Like the, the big, bold ideas that someone like Bernie Sanders is putting forward actually reflects the the ethos of those young people who who really feel the effects of climate change, who really feel the effects of not having a good healthcare system. So it's a both um, it's a both and if that makes sense. It's it's the bold ideas and and the sort of the big picture vision that we want to push forward, as well as just writ large. You know, our elected officials are more white and male than our than our country uh, by far. So you guys, um, you're one of three female founders of this Mm -hmm. group. Um, One of them is uh, Leah Hunt Hendricks, a granddaughter of a Texas oil billionaire. Mm -hmm. I know Susan Pritzker from the Hyatt Hotel Fortune is involved, too. What 
like when you guys first started getting together and talking about this, I mean, I assume in fundraising, it's good to have people like that on <laughs> in the in the room. But I wonder, like, what are they bringing besides just money? Is it connections? Is it insight? Um, and and mm. and how does that kind of just like work, you know, from a practical level? Yeah. I mean, Leah brings a, a wealth of knowledge. She's she is a, a scholar and a big thinker, and so I mean, everybody brings something else other than just resources and access to resources. I think what's what's interesting about um, the work that we do around donor organizing is like when you know you know that organized money is really important to you know achieve the kind of change we want to achieve, and so. It's it's like organizing in any community. It's it's organizing, you know, people who have re- more resource to bring to bear. Um, so, yeah, I mean, like, it's, what's the pitch then when you're? Because I know a lot of the money you guys are raising is in the the typical places we think of the Silicon Valley's, the Hollywoods, whatever, and yeah. then you're sending it elsewhere. Yeah, I mean, the pitch is that we know that there has to be a different way to win. We know that. Um, we have the Democrats lost, you know, over thousand seats uh, in the past eight to ten years. The the old ways of doing things aren't working, and so we can't continue to um, work on a boom and bust cycle where we only put money in big money every four years. We are not doing sustained investments over time. Um, If we only fund candidate campaigns, we're not leaving anything behind. After the election, we we build up a big candidate campaign and then win or lose, that infrastructure goes away. The midterms, uh, Democrats did quite well. Uh, What what were the takeaways? I mean, there were were a lot of seats picked up in Congress, but there were some high-profile candidates like Stacey Abrams, who Beto O'Rourke in Texas, who came really close. Gillum and yeah, and Gillum in Florida. Florida. The I mean, you guys kind of see those as wins. I we do see them as wins. Yeah, because they came so close, and they were written off very early on as that they were complete long long shots. There's no way that Stacey Abrams could win, or there's no way that Beto could take on Ted Cruz. So, actually, the fact that this is part of how it works. Um, in Texas is a good example. You know, um, Barack Obama won in Texas. Uh, if you look at the biggest county in Texas, which is like the st- a state size, the size uh-huh. of Iowa, um, Harris County, Barack Obama won, um, you know, by a, a couple hundred thousand votes. You know, previous, the Democrats had been losing. Barack Obama won. Hillary Clinton won that same county by like 1.6 million votes or something. So it's if is that the county around Dallas, around um, Houston, Houston. Houston yeah. So you see progress, mm-hmm. right? So the fact that Hillary Clinton lost Texas by eight percentage points and Beto lost by three percentage points, that's progress. And it actually shows that there is a path to win and that it takes real investment and it takes real work. I will say on the takeaways piece, definitely the candidates that excite people win. I mean, if you look at Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and her you know, primary win, when people are excited about a candidate at the ticket on the ticket, we can win. Also, the other big takeaway for for many of us is what happened in Georgia was systemic voter suppression, and that that played a real role. And so that's something we really need to tackle going forward. 
Just a reminder, you're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer. And tonight we're interviewing Democratic fundraiser and strategist Jennifer Fernandez Ancona. So speaking of that, um, one of the things that I know you guys talk about is it's not just these sort of top of the ticket names that are important and that looking at, you know, I don't even know if it's like coattails or reverse coattails, but like organizing folks, you know, to run for uh, prosecutor's offices. This is something you were working on before Trump Mm -hmm. um, to run for local city councils. What in those states we're talking about, like Mm -hmm. Georgia and Texas, did you guys see the fruits of that labor in races that maybe we're ignoring here in the media? (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, that was one of the big takeaways out of Texas, for example, was they swept the the county level races. Oh, right. All those there, county all those, judges. Um, black women judges yeah. who won. Uh, there's a woman, Lena Hildago, who's the, the main county judge there in Harris County, who's an amazing young woman of color. Um, so that... It was a reverse coattail situation, and I think the, the energy around Beto and what he was able to do actually helped also move people out to these local races. But but in order for that to work, you need those strong organizations at the state and local level that are going to be educating people about who's on the ballot and how they connect with their issues. As you know, there's this big discussion going on right now among Democrats, especially about who can win, who can beat Donald Trump. Yeah. And there's one school of thought that we should, we meaning Democrats, should uh, nominate somebody like Joe Biden, you know, somebody who's safe, somebody who's going to win back those white working class voters and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and Michigan mm-hmm. that Hillary Clinton lost. And then there's another school that says, no, 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 what we need is a young, somebody who's exciting. Fresh face. You know, somebody yeah. like Stacey Abrams, you know. Um, how do you... How does the work that you do fit mm-hmm. into that conversation? Do you see it? Is it either or, or is it, as you said earlier, you know, but and? <laughs> sure. Uh, so at Way to Win, we actually released uh, what we call the presidential playbook. And for us, that looked like we need to make decisions about this primary election um, based on what we actually need to win uh, and not and what we need to govern and not based on abstract things like electability. So we really believe that people should support and vote for candidates who excite them, who they really want to support, and not on um, thinking about what other people might do down the road. (laughs) Um, It really should be, at this point, with so many candidates in the race, with so much to offer, it's a chance for people to really engage and listen to what people are saying. So the playbook lays out a series of, again, sort of signals that we should be looking for. One is... you know, the reflective democracy question. Are they bringing some energy that's going to excite people around, you know, reflecting the new American majority? There's there's questions around um, the issues that, pe- that people are putting forward. So you guys forward. are getting into the policy yeah, questions. Yeah, the policy too. questions. And, and again, wanting to, the for me, the path to electability is through boldness. Like right now, it's a time for us to be bold and for us to, to I mean, we're not going up against someone who's moderate. And so it, it is a chance to actually um, come from a real values place and paint a picture of the kind of future that we want to create. What's an example of how that would be you know, spelled out in a policy? Like the Green New Deal, for Example. The Green New Deal is a good is a good example of a bold policy. Um, Medicare for all, you know, thinking about um, women's reproductive health in a different bold way, where every woman should really have access to the kind of co- coverage she needs. Um, you know, everything around there's policies around criminal justice. There's you know yeah. policies, all kinds of different 
issue areas, but it is around not um, like it doesn't sound like a litmus test per se. No. Okay, a menu of options, maybe. Yeah, a menu of options. Gavin knew someone like that. (laughs) Um, Well, let me ask you this: like, how did you get into this work? Because I think you were a journalist at one point. You worked at the LA Times. (laughs) Um, What drew you into political fundraising? Uh, great question. Well, what drew me into politics was being a journalist at the time of the twenty, the two thousand election. Okay. Did you uh, cover politics? Or? I I didn't cover politics per se. I covered local politics, okay. but um, you know, I was a journalist, and so I was observing um, from the outside. And that that two thousand election affected me. You know, the Supreme Court decision. It just didn't sit right. And then I started, and then when I saw George W. Bush come into power, I got I got kind of radicalized around 9-11 happening. I was a journalist. I covered 9-11 from that perspective of, you know, this thing happened and we had to get all hands on deck and go to places and talk to people. So that what happened in 9-11 and then the response to 9-11 that Bush led um the the war in iraq it really it really affected me and so i actually made a decision that i could no longer be a journalist because i was not it was not enough for me to just cover this issue or cover politics or there were all the the peace marches and i wanted to be in the peace marches and i didn't want to just cover them so i actually made a decision that i need to get off the observation part of things and get really more into it because I had so much passion. Did you come from a family that was politically active? Not really. My family wasn't super politically active. I mean, um, it wasn't really a part of of our of my upbringing, I had on one side of my family some some more conservative political <laughs> views, but um, but it wasn't a super politically active family, so it was new for me. But um, I essentially decided it really matters. Um, who we nominate, and I got involved in the primary in 2003, and I started working for Howard Dean. I went to Iowa for Howard Dean. <laughs> Back in a in a in a quainter time, when screaming qu- once could actually derail everything. Yeah. yeah, So that's how I ended up. I quit my job as a journalist at the LA Times. I got involved in politics, and then just in doing political work, I worked for the California State Assembly. I worked for um, Hannah Beth Jackson, and HBJ. Um, she's back. Yeah, HBJ <laughs> is back. Um, and then I, I how I got into political fundraising was I worked. Um, for powerpack.org and Steve Phillips okay. and Susan Sandler and you you guys probably know them. We do. Yeah, we, we do. had Amy on. We had Amy on. Yeah, What's yeah. the hardest part about raising money? About asking somebody for a big, you know, big check? <laughs> or does that not make you uncomfortable? Because maybe that's what you need to do. <laughs> I think it's all about um, being really clear about the vision and really believing in what you're trying to do. And then it's not hard to ask for for money because you're trying you know that money is required to do the work that needs to happen and you know that people who have money actually want to be a part of you know a different world and so it's just about kind of marrying those two things um the, sometimes the hardest part is actually um just finding more like expanding the the base of of donors you know who you can talk to all right Democratic fundraiser Jennifer Fernandez-Ancona, co-founder of Way to Win. Thanks for coming in. Thank you so much. Good to have you. That'll do it for this edition of Political Breakdown, a production of KQED Public Radio. Our producer is Guy Marzarotti. Our engineer is Seal Muller. Our leadership team includes Vinnie Tong, Ethan Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. 
I'm Scott Schaefer. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at M Lagos. That is a wrap for this week's political breakdown from KQED. We'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. Bye. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find the link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hi there, I'm Randa Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast.